Hello, boys and ghouls. Kat here. Welcome to episode 11 of our Behind the Scream series, where we explore the world of fear, shock, and horror by talking to tastemakers in the genre. If you're listening to this episode the day it drops, it's Friday the 13th. Spooky. And today, we are going to be talking about a heavy hitter, but it's not Jason. Today, we're talking about Jaws. I was lucky enough to snag an interview with Mark Ramsey, host and creator of Wondery's Inside Jaws podcast, which is a deep dive into the making of the film and the life of the man behind it, Steven Spielberg. If you remember, back in October 2017, we dropped a preview of Inside the Exorcist on our feed. Well, Mark made that podcast too, along with Inside Psycho. Inside Jaws is my favorite of this series of shows. You guys, it is truly fantastic. I've heard all the episodes already. I can't recommend it enough. And I had so much fun talking to Mark about horror, Spielberg, and the power of audio. So here's my interview with Mark Ramsey. Enjoy. Listen, I don't care about sports. Um, I just don't follow it. So I never would have heard about this, but they did a series on Bikram yoga. I know this show. I've, I think I listened to the teaser for the show, but I haven't listened to the show. It's a, uh, whoo, there's a lot I didn't know. Um, yeah, it's just about the, the man. man, the man himself. Yeah. Um, so the way I like to kick things off here is by asking you as rapid fire as we can, um, some foundational things about you, about who you are, uh, spookily, if you will. <laughs> um, so I have this list of questions that I ask all of our guests. Um, I feel like we can learn a lot about a person that way. So are cool. you game? All right. I'll try. Right. What scared you as a child, Mark Ramsey? And what was your first introduction to horror? Uh, I don't know my first introduction to horror, but I know that what scared me as a child, I remember vividly, and I was telling my wife this just the other day, being a kid, when they used to do like movie screenings at the, at the local library, and my dad took me for a screening of, um, of The Pit in the Pendulum, okay? And, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the original. Right. Uh, Roger Corman version. So, uh, and I remember at the end, you know, when, when, when the, the camera focuses on the end on, um, what's her name? Barbara, um, I'm blanking on her name, but the woman's eyes in the, in the uh, locked up in the, um, in that thing with the spikes in it. And I was just shuddering. And I remember my dad turned to me and said, it's only a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Did that help? <laughs> Um, I don't know if it helped, but it didn't stop me. And also when I was a, a young, young kid, um, there were le- the, that was the era of late night uh, horror movies uh, pulled from the 60s and 70s and 40s and 30s and horror hosts and all that stuff. And I grew up with all of that and, um, and then graduated later to, to, to Joe Bob Briggs and other uh, uh, things of the 90s. Isn't Joe Bob coming back on Shudder, I heard? I believe it's this weekend, uh, next weekend, next uh, Friday. That's yes. so exciting. And not a, it's a funny thing, just funny side story, but um, I, am, I have probably, possibly, 
the largest collection of bootleg Monster Vision, Joe Bob Monster Vision DVDs <laughs> in America. And um, so we travel with them. Whenever we travel, uh, we would take a bunch of these DVDs with us. And, you know, they're all kind of crappy. I, I think whatever the middle quality version on a VHS was in its day, I think it was called LP. It's usually, most of it is that. And we get to see these weird commercials from all over the country. Um, and so the condition of it is a little sketchy. But what's funny is on any of our exotic vacations, we went to Switzerland one year, we went to Poland another year. Uh, we take a picture of us watching the uh, DVD in this exotic location, and I send it to Joe Bob, to John, and he always gets a kick out of the fact that his show, you know, 20, 25 years after it went off the air, is being watched by somebody at some exotic vacation destination. I just thought that kind of tickles him, so every year we send him a photo. Okay, so what scares you now? Um, gosh, politics? Um, <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, I I think what I, 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 I I'm I'm hesitating only because obviously I like a lot of the Blumhouse style stuff in terms of entertainment. Um, I um, I I think what I'm more interested now than ever in is stuff that isn't only scary. In other words, not is if it's just about being scary, I'm less interested in it than if it's about something bigger. I mean. Get Out is a perfect example, right? Yep. Which is about something bigger than just being scary. It doesn't need to be, you know, a, a social issue, but um, it's just ambitious. And by the way, go back to the Twilight Zone. I mean, that was always not necessarily scary, but it was ironic. It was chilling. It was whatever, fantastic. But it was all, always or usually about something bigger. And oh, yeah. I think I that's lacking now. I just watched, uh, I'm, I'm starting a Twilight Zone journey myself because they're on Netflix and, um, I I've seen episodes over the years, but I'm starting with season one, episode one. And, um, just thinking about what you're saying, there's an episode in the first season called walking distance. A man, uh, goes back to his hometown and when he arrives there, it is kind of like the time when he was a kid and, um, mm. his parents are there and everything is as it was. And, um, he, he kind of tries to insert himself into things and, you know, talk to his mom and dad and he comes to realize he doesn't belong there, but he kind of comes away with a lesson and it's, you know, it's like, it's not scary, but it taught, it speaks to, you know, your fears about getting older and what you're doing with your life because he's like this executive in Manhattan. And he's like, well, you know, I got to get back to what was important to me when I was 10, you know? Um, it's so good for that. The twilight zone. And that's, that's one of the famous episodes, the famous understated episodes, now the non-Burgess Meredith, you know, non-Monster uh, on a Plane episodes that um, is so famous, in part because it's so relevant for Rod Serling. I'm in the middle of reading a biography of him right now, and that is really his story, uh, growing up as a kid in Binghamton, this kind of idyllic life as he remembered it. And then he goes off into the wild world of New York and Hollywood and screenplays and teleplays and, and, you know, always with that kind of sense of nostalgia for things gone by. Wow. Um, all right. What, oof, what is your favorite horror movie of all time? Favorite doesn't mean you think it's the best. Well, I, I have a stock answer to this and it's always a surprising answer because I don't even know if it's in the category of horror movie, but it kind of is. Um, 
and it's uh, it's Christopher Nolan's most underrated film, The Prestige. Ooh, I feel like I've heard you mention that maybe on another podcast. That's right. I love that movie. Yeah, it's uh, I have mentioned it on another podcast because that's everyone's, you know, I I mean, I have a I will say I have a soft spot for the original Halloween because I was in the theater at the time watching it with a bunch of crazy people and it was just (laughs) insane. But, um, you know, as Jamie Lee Curtis and I both get older, um, I, I, I like to look to other things and, uh, the prestige is just one of those movies. It's like 10 years old now. And it, it doesn't nearly have the following of the other Christopher Nolan films, but it has, uh, but anyone who likes Chris, a Christopher Nolan, B his brother, Jonathan, who is now the showrunner for uh, Westworld. Um, those, all of those elements are wrapped up in this one kind of amazing, quirky, uh, twisty movie that I just that absolutely should fall under the category of uh, horror, but as again, it's so much more. Yes. Uh, what is the scariest movie of all time to you? I'm tempted to say The Exorcist, but I don't know that it was because it took me so long to see it. Sure. I, uh, I, I, you know, I wasn't old enough to see it in the theater, and uh, and it just wasn't the same when it showed up on the the small screen. I I will say. That when I was in the theater seeing Halloween, the audience was just insane. And, you know, those were the days when when you heard about this movie, but you never heard any spoilers. You didn't know what was going to happen. There was a buzz about it. But you were in a college town or whatever, and, you know, you had to go into town. It was a big deal to see a movie. <laughs> and you brought the whole crew of friends with you. And everyone was just freaking out. And that kind of reaction. That, uh, that may seem kind of quaint when we look back at the movie now. Um, it was just so amazing. And then there are movies, the movies that I, I like, like the paranormal activity movies, I like to show my wife to just freak her out. And I'm not allowed to scare her at all after showing her one of those. <laughs> What's your favorite subgenre of film, horror film specifically? Well, uh, I will say uh, I have a soft spot for the classics. And, you know, there's something about um, seeing, um, you know, Boris Karloff, you know, walk through a black and white frame um, and do the original Frankenstein thing that's just really amazing. And, you know, people forget sometimes, just like Chainsaw, same thing. People forget how good those original movies were until you go back to the original. I mean, the original Chainsaw is just light years better than what followed. And the original Frankenstein is light years beyond, not beyond Bride, but beyond anything that followed it. And um, so I think I have a soft spot for those. I also have a soft spot for the, uh, the Hammer classics. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, I mean, it's, I once saw an interview with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee together and Christopher Lee was, they were both very old and Christopher Lee was kind of making fun of Peter Cushing saying, you know, you walk into, you walk into a room and there's all this business that you do. I mean, you have, you're delivering a line, but you're lighting a match and you're moving an umbrella and you're doing this, all these fantastic mannerisms that you have. And Peter Cushing is just laughing about this, but it's, if you watch him, it really is so true. The guy is just a master and yet his, his great fame was to be, you know, uh, Dr. Frankenstein or, uh, or, or, you know, in one of the Dracula movies. I mean, that was his, his thing. But if you see some of the anthology movies that we, he was in, 
Um, they did a lot of Amicus and so on, the anthology movies of the time. You'll see kind of exactly how great his scope was. And it was really uh, fantastic. And I know one other funny story when they were old, you know, making fun of each other. Christopher Lee said, everywhere I go in the world, no matter where it is, people say, where's Peter Cushing? <laughs> said, My answer all the time is the same. I don't know. <laughs> that just goes to show how personal it is for people. You know, yes. they, they expect them just to be hanging out. Uh, my favorite sequel is Friday the 13th part six. It has a place in my heart. Do you have a favorite sequel of a major horror franchise? Um, favorite sequel. Um, that's that one caught catches me off guard. I'm trying to think. <laughs> it what always my does. Sequel would be. Um, I uh, yeah. I well, here's a weird answer. I kind of view the fog as a sequel to Halloween. Ooh, okay. And I love the fog, the original, um, not the one with uh, what's her name from Fear the Walking Dead. Um, the uh, the the original with uh, everyone's favorite uh, uh, scream queen Jamie Lee Curtis. Yes. Um, and it's just first of all, it's I could see it, I could see it back to back to back constantly, and it just never gets old for me. It's got a certain cheesiness to it, but again, just to see you know the 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 John Carpenter do his bit part is amazing. Adrian Barbeau. Oh, here's the other thing. It's got this whole kind of audio overlay, right? Audio is really important to that movie, The Fog, because Adrienne Barbeau runs a radio station, apparently single-handedly, but she runs a radio station <laughs> right. with some of the worst music. In fact, I've got a t-shirt that says KAB, Antonio, Antonio Bay, and exactly zero people understand the reference, but I don't care. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's the thing where, you know, if someone comes up to you and, and uh, uh, looks at your shirt and goes, I, I see you, I know what that is. You yes. know, you've met a really like fellow, um, horror fan. That's right. I think I'd have to go to Comic-Con for it to, for that to happen. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, Wandering around LA might, uh, might be pretty, it might happen pretty quickly down uh, Magnolia that's Boulevard true. where I don't know if you've uh, visited the, you know, Halloween town, like that whole area bearded lady, like you run into a bunch of horror nerds down there who would oh, probably right. know exactly, you'd probably see somebody with the same shirt. Um, right. there, it's a, it's a lovely town <laughs> for that. Hmm. Um, favorite director. Uh, in the, in the genre, you mean, you know what, uh, I will open it up. It can be of anything. Um, I've always been partial to, uh, well here, I'll, I'll tell you by, by way of telling you a story. So my wife and I were at, um, uh, in Colorado in, uh, Estes park at the Stanley hotel. And if you know the reference to Stanley hotel is the infamous hotel where Stephen King yes. uh, got lost and, you know, was inspired to write the shining. So they're making hay with the shining even still. One of the things they do there is a, um, is a kind of a, a, a seance magic show thing. And they've got a guy who I guess does this for a living. He was on America's got talent. And now he does this regular kind of seance magic show, a couple, two, three nights a week at the Stanley. And, um, uh, and I had to go, I mean, we were there for a few nights and that was the only night. So I said, we got to go. And so, um, my wife said, if I'm going to go to a seance, I got to have some coffee. So I got her some coffee. We went to the seance. So anyway, we, we were sitting right up in front 
And, uh, you know, you know how it works. Whenever you make eye contact with someone and they're looking for volunteers for their magic show, they have to call on you. So he called on me and I went up there to participate in his trick and I was terrified I would screw it up, but evidently it was dummy proof. Um, so, uh, I didn't screw it up. Um, <laughs> but one of the things he asked me was, uh, he asked a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people in the room, if you could meet anybody, who would you want it to be? And, um, for some reason, a lot of people say like, uh, uh you know, rock stars or, you know, current movie star or, or just past movie stars or whatever. My answer was Orson Welles. <laughs> and, um, he, like the, this guy, the magician, just lit up when I said that because, first of all, no one had ever said that to him before. And also, Orson Welles, legendary uh, director uh, uh, of cinema, was also an amateur, maybe not even amateur, magician. So he was just completely stoked about that. But the reason for Welles is not because all of his movies to me are all that fascinating, many of them are not, um, but because he was just the ultimate, he was the rebel's rebel. And he, out of, out of, from doing a bunch of hit theater in New York, got this dream contract at RKO and they gave him carte blanche to do whatever the heck he wanted. And he got together with, you know, Herman Mankiewicz and they wrote this amazing screenplay for what turned out to be this amazing movie. This guy who had never directed before, uh, who had never co-written a screenplay before, and it was certainly never acted in motion pictures before. And here he did all of it. Um, and he did it in what is still regarded as one of the best movies ever made, Citizen Kane. And that just, even though the rest of his story after that point was an inconsistent one and not always a pretty one, and to some degree a self-destructive one, um, that achievement for a guy who was like 25 uh, was just remarkable. And I think it's just a reminder you know, for any of us who aren't sure we know how to do something, the best advice is to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I love seeing those messages occasionally from people who have been successful in any capacity creatively who are like everyone, every single one of us who has made any name for ourselves have been told repeatedly over the years, you don't have what it takes. Why don't you do something more practical, um, you know, or been tried to people have tried to restrain us like just do whatever it is that you do the best. Yeah. Once I was having a, uh, an interview or conversation with uh, Vincent D'Onofrio and I remember we were talking about, and it was just the two of us. We had half an hour. So it was, it was fun. We were playing battleship. It was all kinds of fun. So one of the things I said was, you know, you must, do you feel really lucky? And he looked at me like the question was crazy because of course he feels lucky, you know? He just said, oh, yeah, <laughs> I know how lucky I am. It's that you you go to any of these people and, you know, because success is so delicate. Celebrity is so delicate um, that if you are fortunate enough, I mean, skills are not enough. There's skilled people who get ignored every day. There are great songs that nobody listens to every day. Fabulous books people don't read every day. Uh, wonderful podcasts that never get heard every day. Um so uh, some amount of that success is luck. And that's one of the things I, I've tried to illustrate even in Inside Jaws. Because uh, while, while the story ostensibly is about the kind of the framing of Jaws, um, the reality is that it's really the story of the becoming of, uh, of Steven Spielberg 
as a legend, um, from geek to legend, all in seven episodes. It's really his story. And Jaws is just the, you know, central fulcrum around which that um, transition, you know, moves. Um, before the movie, he was one thing and after he was something else. Let's let's get into that. Um, this is a really good opportunity to sort of dive in. Oh boy, I didn't even mean to do that, but um, we're we're doing it. Uh, <laughs> um, so you previously produced um, Inside Psycho and Inside the Exorcist two series, which I really enjoyed, um, and were full of immersive audio. And you know, Jaws is definitely Inside Jaws is definitely part and parcel of those two. But there is a quality to this newest um, Inside series that is just its own thing. It is so charming and so now when this when this I should say when this uh, interview goes up, people will have only been able to hear the first four episodes. So just keep Probably that in mind. Um, everyone won't won't have heard everything, um, but you should definitely go listen if you're listening Out to seven. this. Out seven of seven, three. yeah. Um, but you know, I think people will find that this series is very special in that respect. Um, so what, how, is that how you set out to tell, is that the kind of story you set out to tell with Inside Jaws or did that come about as you started putting the series together? How did that work out? It's what I set out to do. Um, specifically, um, I wanted this to be a Steven Spielberg movie about a Steven Spielberg movie focused on the evolution of Steven Spielberg. Um, to an extent, I view it kind of as a, you know, a, a big fat wet kiss, you know, a thank you. Uh, um, I mean, I grew up with the, you know, early Steven Spielberg movies. You grew up with Steven Spielberg movies. Mm -hmm. I mean, that stuff is a part of the DNA of anyone who's ever sat in front of a big silver screen, uh, who's alive today. And I just thought, you know, that we, there's, we talk about him a lot. We obsess on his work a lot. We talk about, you know, the prestige stuff, the so-called serious movies and so on. We try not to talk about the disappointments. Um, and even in that, I was just starting to write this when the documentary came out last year. And I thought, well, this documentary is good, but it really is Stephen talking about every movie, every successful movie that he's made. And I thought, well, that's shallow. I, I still don't. <laughs> You know, I, I get it, but it's still not that interesting to me. And I thought, well, where, where's the hero story? You know, where's the story of this, you know, the geeky um, Jewish kid from Phoenix who, um, who was alone in his faith pretty much outside of his family and, and his friends weren't Jewish, which is interesting, by the way, because I grew up exactly the opposite. In my town, um, my town was heavily Jewish. And I was the only non-Jew <laughs> in my town. All of my friends were Jewish. I get to college and there's like, there's no Jewish people. And I'm like, well, what do you mean it's strange that you're here with Jew? I mean, I, <laughs> I don't even understand it. So I had very much the opposite feeling of him, but I never felt ostracized the way he did. You're right. Spielberg is this kind of mythic figure. Um, you know, I think about, it's weird. My first introduction to Spielberg besides seeing films, but my first 
introduction of like the idea that he was a thing, a, a thing to be referred to by one word, um, was I grew up on Dawson's Creek. I was totally mm-hmm. a Creek head, um, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't think gets enough credit for being a really smart show, but, um, because it was all teen drama, but Dawson, the lead character is obsessed with Steven Spielberg. Right. He wants to be a filmmaker. He's got every poster of every movie in his room. And so I was like, Oh, okay. This is like a big deal guy. And of course we all, you know, like you said, you grow up, uh, d- people alive today grow up with different version, different movies as their Spielberg film that like really touched them. But, but we think he would just think of him as this big thing versus what you're doing with inside jaws is you're showing us this kid who was, you know, like who fought his way through, um, uncertainty to like figure out who he was and become this like incredibly prolific director. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I think we we lucked into a way of telling the story that allowed all the pieces to come together very, very nicely at the end. And I'm not going to give anything away, but it's my opinion, and this may be yours too, that the last 13 minutes or so of the last episode make the whole thing just elevates the whole thing to another level. And it, you can't see it coming when you look at the label and it says Inside Jaws. And in fact, when... I was first conceiving this, you know, I toyed with the idea of titling it Becoming Spielberg, which Mm. is actually the name of episode one right now. Yes. Because really that's what the whole thing's about. But he doesn't become Spielberg without Jaws. So Jaws is, Jaws occupies, you know, uh, uh, primarily two, two and a half episodes of the seven. The all, the rest are really all about Spielberg in the presence of Jaws and and, uh, and warming up to that point and, and breaking in. And I think, too, anybody who's ever tried to make anything, tried to create anything, tried to start anything, tried to kind of probe the limits of what they're capable of and good at and want to do and want to be, I think they'll see themselves reflected in this story. And indeed, I think that's why Steven Spielberg, classic Spielberg in particular, is as big as it is, because he, he paints pictures that are relatable. He paints families you can recognize as yourself. Um, and and I, I think that's one of the skills that, um, that still exists today to a degree, but you know we're just not all on the same page today the way we used to be. And mm-hmm. the kinds of movies that people see today are not the kinds they used to see. And I, you know, now if, it's, you know, if it doesn't have a cape and a, a cowl, um, we're not seeing it in the movie theater. And I get that. But that's not that those aren't Steven Spielberg movies, any of them. Yeah, I I was thinking a lot about exactly what you just said. I I rewatched Jaws yesterday um, for the first time since I was a kid and realized that I'm not sure I ever actually made it all the way through that movie as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't believe as for for what was a PG film um, how absolutely terrifying beyond terrifying and upsetting this movie is and it's because you're right spielberg had this has this way of of even in a giant film um creating such human moments that you really care about people i've been thinking a lot about what you said about um how movies aren't in in a very in a very in probably very like um tangible, like provable ways. This isn't a nostalgia thing. Movies are not the way that they were. They're not made the same way that they were. They're not, they don't feel the way that they did. And it seems to me like, uh, you were 
really spot on in, in telling the Spielberg story because Jaws as a film would not be what it is without it being Spielberg making it, obviously. You know, he he was young, very talented, but in many ways naive to what could, what was possible and kind of pushed this giant movie studio into doing something that had never been done the way that it had been done. And I mean, we'll never get a movie like this again, which is wild. Yeah, I mean, the fact that famously the shark was never working, uh, Spielberg himself acknowledges as a blessing for the film because that required him to be a lot more creative in how he kind of painted pictures of the shark without the shark actually being present. And what he ended up doing was hiding, was literally submerging the shark. Um, <laughs> you don't see it until you're something like an hour in and then you barely see it. And then the barrels substitute for the shark. Oh my the time. God, the barrels. It's terrifying. <laughs> and, and the fact that you don't, I mean, and this I think is, is symbolic of what we're doing in the audio space with, with these podcasts, which is, you know, it's what you don't see that's scary. And we've all had the experience talk about horror movies of turning the volume down on a horror movie. And it's just, uh, it's ridiculous is what it is. It's never scary without the audio. So the audio is just central to it. We did a lot in this series. We and but when I say we, I mean my amazing and priceless um, uh, partner in crime, uh, sound designer Jeff Schmidt, um, did a lot. Um, and it, it, you know, you mentioned early on the term immersive audio, and I think of it differently. I it may be immersive in in effect, but it's really intended to be organic in intention, and it it's it's. It's the, the, it's not just sound effects. And this is so misunderstood. It's not just sound effects. It's an audio environment for things to happen. It could be musical. It could be effects. It could be something else. It could be what you do. It could be pause. It could be silence. There were a number of times where Jeff and I, where I would say, um, make that beat a little longer. You know, the last word of the, uh, last episode, which I won't share, mm -hmm. um, I, I said to him, let's make that half a beat longer. Right. <laughs> and you know what? Yeah. It's better. And, and, and everyone brings different ears to this thing, but sometimes it's what you don't say and when you don't say it. And some of the scariest things in the, in the podcast are the moments when you don't hear any narration and you barely hear anything at all. And that's because, as you say, that's the equivalent, that's the audio equivalent of people on the beach. And it was very much my intention to, um, to, to create, I wrote and created and conceived this and Jeff, you know, flesh this out and produce this as a movie. This is a movie or a limited mm -hmm. TV series. It just happens to lack pictures, but right. it's, it's written It's I mean, he tells me, he says, you know, when I get the script from you, it's in script form. When I get the scripts from other people for other shows, it's, it's written narrative. And I mean, you know, you, a different mindset comes into that. And the things that, that, that he, and I, he asked me once, he said, do you go back and check the script after I do the audio for the, the episode? And I said, no, because the minute you do the audio, you've changed the script. Um, I, in other words, you've, you've, I, you've taken input A, you've added element B, and you've produced output C. So now I've got mm -hmm. to evaluate output C based on what it is rather than what I originally wrote. Right. And that's the beauty of collaborating with, with, seriously talented people on projects that they, I, and you, the listener care about. Yeah, that I, you're touching on things I wanted to ask you about, which is, which is, and I love hearing you say that 
in, you know, that, that you're more about defining this as being more organically produced rather than immersive audio. Cause it almost feels like immersive, immersive almost feels like something that you're doing to the listener versus, um, at least in my, in, I don't know, at least the way I think about it. And with the inside series, it feels like you're just, you're just, you're just supplementing a story with, you know, sounds that, that evoke feeling naturally. So like I, 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 now that I'm thinking about it, when I'm listening to the entirety of the inside jaws series, I'm not, I'm not conscious necessarily of the sounds. It's just become a part of the storytelling. Yeah. I think immersive implies you'll feel like you're there and I don't, oh, sure. I don't, I don't yeah. care if you feel like you're there. I want you to feel like you care. And that's, I think, where the combination of the writing and the way I'm trying to um, um, deliver the material um, in a way that kind of is, is, is it, it's intentionally not radio drama and it's intentionally not straight narration. It's not the kind of thing. I mean, Wondery is maybe one of the few companies that can actually put this out because Wondery gets this. Yes. Uh, Wondery is, you know, founded by TV people. They understand television. They understand the power of images and pictures and the power of images and pictures can easily be conveyed to audio. And my primary intention here was to help or make listeners feel something uh, by the end of this series. And that is and, and to tell a larger story and not simply to you know, follow along with something interesting. This is not a public radio story. This is not something you're going to get from Gimlet. No offense, Gimlet. Um, but <laughs> I love Gimlet. Yeah, they do, but they do a very different thing than what Wondery it's does. It's just drier. I mean, this is this is not intended. And one of the things I had to fight for in this, by the way, and I won't say against who, is some <laughs> of the some of the humor. Um, and I, I because I thought that like the original movie, what makes Jaws work is the mix of suspense and humanity and humor and you know thrills and horror and scares it's 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 a it's it's all of those things together and i wanted to make sure to have the funny stuff in here and in fact carl gottlieb the guy who co-wrote the screenplay and the guy who is actually we have a bonus episode episode number eight which is an interview that i do with carl um his background was in comedy writing and he brought that element to this movie and, Absolutely. And it would not the be difference. the same without that. Yeah. And it I, did. I it really did. There's a line between, you know, comedy and Sharknado. Um, <laughs> and that, so, but it, it, I mean, Sharknado is obviously intended to be over the top, but I think what he does here is it's in the service, not of satire, but of character. And if you really kind of understand how it feels to be, you know, Steven Spielberg at 20, 25, kind of you know, facing down Joan Crawford with a blindfold on or, <laughs> or facing down an audience at South by Southwest at age 71 when, you know, the, when he hasn't had a big hit in 10 years, uh, when he's now more famous for now, clearly more famous for quote unquote serious movies than for popular ones. Um, I mean, that's a whole different predicament to be in. And the question you have to ask yourself as a filmmaker at that point is, do I still have what it takes? Mm. Yeah. Oh man. Do I have what it takes? That that's, that's the other thing that was so, um, uh, without getting too in the weeds with the later episodes that aren't out yet. Um, that's something that 
uh, I think is so inspiring to hear about from, uh, is, is that aspect of a story of a, of a now incredibly, you know, galaxy wide popular director, someone who's really widely revered is, um, sort of the idea that even he had that sort of, um, thought, uh, had those thoughts. Like, I don't, I don't know if I have what it takes. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's always wonderful to hear a story like that. The fact that he genuinely, and you know, some of what I put in there was a little, I mean, this is, this is not a filmography and this is not a, a, a director's commentary and this is not a documentary. This is docudrama. This is biopic is what this is. So some of the stuff I wrote in there is a little fanciful, but a lot of it, quite a bit of it, in fact, the vast majority of it is based on things that are true. And one of the absolutely true things is that to this day, he chooses fingernails down to the nub <laughs> because of his anxiety over these films. And this is a guy who, you know, is like he, at one point in his career, he was one failure away from failure. Now he's like a zillion failures away from failure His failures, not even on the radar for him. It's, it would be impossible for him to fail if every movie he makes from here on out fails. Um, and that's, uh, I think part of the charm, part of the charm that you mentioned is the fact that I tried to make him a real person. And I don't know if you've ever met him, I had one opportunity. My brother actually works for him sometimes. Oh my goodness! But I, I have, I had, which I teased my brother about because I said, "Well, if he doesn't like the uh, the series, you're in big trouble." <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, uh, I had one meeting. I not meeting, but I encountered him. I met him at an event once years ago because he was familiar with some of the stuff I was doing at the time. And the interesting thing about him, in that very short, and I mean short, like people are tugging at his his sleeve to move him to another place was that he was completely focused in that moment on me. You know, he, he was curious about what I was doing and he was asking questions about me. And only when I started asking a question about him, did his interest visibly wane, you know, by then he was gone. Wow. But, But it was just really interesting that he can be in front of you like that and, and be interested in, 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 in your story and in what's going on with you because something about it fascinates him. And, I, right. and, I, and there are a lot of people who do what he does um, who wouldn't qualify uh, for that. So I'm sure it's easy to, um, you know, I mean, there are people who are just assholes, but I'm sure that it's easy, even if you're a good person to kind of fall prey to that feeling of like, Oh, everything, once everything becomes about you, once your world, once you're so, so successful that you've got teams of people and there are a lot of expectations and people treat you as though the world revolves around you, probably pretty easy to let that go to your head and become a thing where you, you by default, just expect that the conversation will revolve around you. But I, I think it does show what, um, what, what, a what a create, what a person he is, you know, he's, he's so for someone to create films that are so human centric. And, um, even when it's a giant, like, um, minority report, you know, it's like this crazy, weird, high concept mm-hmm. thing that you, that he can still manage to create, like have human elements that break your heart. Um, he's gotta be somebody who, who cares about people and who is very interested in people. Um, well, I, I am so thankful that you took the time to sit and chat about inside jaws. We could probably talk for another four hours about (laughs) horror movies and, um, Spielberg and creativity. And, um, but I, I couldn't agree with you more that you're conveying, conveying, uh, 
you know, incredibly filmic kind of experience through audio. It's, it's wild. I've never heard anything like these, um, these inside series that you're, that you've done and jaws by far, um, after hearing all the episodes I can say is my favorite. And I really enjoyed, Mm. um, psycho and the exorcist, but man, and, um, I've talked to several other people who feel the same way. So, um, you know, really love it, really excited to see, um, what else is in store for this property or these properties. I can only imagine, you know, once, uh, there's already a lot of buzz, but once people hear everything, it's like that this is just ripe for all kinds of other things. And, so. um, I yeah, I just so. love what you're doing and you can tell that you really care. Um, and I love anyone who can bring sort of, um, horror gets such a sort of, um, CD rap sometimes. So for people to bring, for someone to bring weight and respect to, um, this genre in any way always has my full, um, thanks. And so thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the kind words. And, uh, I, I agree. I'm really excited that again, since by the time this airs, people won't be able to have heard all the episodes unless they do Wondery plus, but those people I've talked to have heard, have heard it all the way through. Yeah, I've just, you know, there's something about endings that justify everything that comes before. And that's true in movies and TV series sometimes. There's just a nice, neat Spielbergian bow slash glow on this. And I couldn't be happier about it. Well, thank you again. Um, enjoy. Uh, I'm sure you've got, you know, still more press to do and um, just uh, enjoy all the good feedback you're getting. So much of the hard work is done, right? <laughs> it's all done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all done. <laughs> Nothing else to do. That's Just it. kidding. I know you're very busy. Um, but thank you again. And um, you. I'm sure that we'll talk soon. Thanks, Kat. And congratulations on the show. Oh, thank you. The first four episodes of Inside Jaws are available for you to listen to right now. Go do it. It's perfect summer listening and great storytelling. We'll see you soon for the next installment in our Behind the Screams series. Until then, and as always, beware the moon. Beware the moon.